Do you ever have reminders that pop up on your phone that when you made them, you knew exactly what was going on. You you knew what was going to happen. And then they come up and you no longer have any idea why they're there, but they look pretty important. I was just living my life today, enjoying some of the sunshine through a very closed window. And all of a sudden on my phone, up pops... Remember to remove $7.99, and there's even a dollar sign, which tells me it has something to do with money, and that I'm spending $7.99, and that I'm supposed to remove this from somewhere. Am I paying anybody who's listening right now $7.99 to do anything? Because if I am, I'd like to talk to you about that, and apparently I'd like to try and Remove that from coming out of my bank account. What does this mean? Technology seems so great. But it takes the person using the technology to actually make it great. They offer it up. I could have written a paragraph. Don't forget that this is a one-time offer and you have to remember to stop it or it will continue to come out. Netflix isn't $7.99. No other streaming services. What am I supposed to remove? No idea. But again, if you are getting $7.99 from me, if if you could please send me an email to mike at 980cfpl.ca, I'd greatly appreciate it. And your, your honesty would be rewarded with an enormous thank you. Other than that, what am I supposed to do? Give you $10 for $7.99? It's been quite a day so far, and we have quite a day on London Live. I'm not good with bleeding. So things that involve blood, I, I can't explain why. I'm okay. I can have a needle. I can have blood drawn. I have high cholesterol, and I get that checked every once in a while. I just don't watch. But if I start thinking about it, even having just a few vials drawn to get blood work done, I get all queasy. And I know, and Cheryl Miller, I owe you such an apology about four or five months ago, I'm thinking. It was probably more like a year. Four or five months ago, in my mind, back when I was spending $7.99 on something for the very first time, Cheryl and I sat in this very studio, and she said, Mike, you are the universal donor. You are O negative. You need to give blood. And I said, Cheryl, I know. I know that that's true. I can't. I just, I'm, I can, but I, and she said, don't worry. You and I are going to go together and we're going to get this done. And this morning at breakfast, my wife reminded me that I had yet to give blood. I have to change that. I haven't had a New Year's resolution. Cheryl, can you and I go and, and give blood at some point? We'll have to book an appointment, but I don't think you have to. Do you have to book an appointment? See, I should know these things. So that's a reminder as well. You can get reminders from your phone. You can get reminders from your wife. Isn't it nice that you don't have to do your own thinking? We're going to be talking about not donating blood, but something else that is very important that does involve blood. It's called Stop the Bleed. And we're going to be joined by the Trauma Program Coordinator at London Health Sciences Center, Allison Armstrong. And she'll take us through something that is free. So it doesn't cost anyone anything. But what they are finding in trauma units and emergency units is that we're losing lives because people don't know what to do when someone suffers 
a cut that is bad enough that they are bleeding profusely. And that's a concern. And so this is not, hey, sign up for $69.99. No, this is they'll set it up, come to your workplace. This is absolutely free of charge. And we're going to go into that. We're also going to talk about another medical topic to open the show. This is coming up in about five, six minutes from now. We're going to go to Mumbai, India. Number one, because I think it's about 33 degrees Celsius there today. And we can dare to dream that it one day will be 33 degrees Celsius here. We're kind of going the other way, although John Wilson does say it's warming up. But we're going to find Dr. Janet Martin because she's the co-author of a study that is indicating there are more deaths post-surgery than HIV, tuberculosis, and a few other things combined. And you would think, well, wait a minute, do I want to have surgery? No, 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 don't think like that. I'll ask her that question because... I should ask her that question. But no, we're in good hands. We have a very good healthcare system here, even though I don't like the words super agency. Do you like those words? I don't like that. The documents leaked yesterday that were kind of they they kind of forced Christine Elliott, the health minister, to step up and have a news conference that maybe the Ontario government wasn't ready for. I don't like the word super agency. Sounds like Space Force. Don't call it that. Call it something. Don't use the word super. Tell me that my healthcare system is going to be different. Figure out how to make it even better because right now it's good. I really believe that. Everybody can slag the healthcare system. There are parts of it that are not good. Hallway medicine is not good. Mistakes were made in my mind years ago when they closed certain beds. And now all of these beds seem to group together in one place. That was wrong. You should have kept things open. But they had to cut. They had to slash. They had to save money. And we ended up losing a lot of psychiatric care beds. Or we had changes to long-term care beds. And now everything seems to be grouped together. And that needs to be fixed. So address those things. I see a lot of positives. But if you get sick in this country, try it. Good things happen. They really do. And this healthcare system, especially in southwestern Ontario, deserves more of a commendation than us going, ah, this is terrible, this is... But it bothers me when they use silly terms like super agency. Don't call it that. Superheroes are popular, not that popular. Let's, let's get to the bottom of what's going on. So that's my two cents on that. But we're going to be talking about surgeries and what is going on around the world that needs to be improved. Because if you're having surgery in southwestern Ontario, if you are going to a hospital in London, and there are many surgeries performed every day, you're in great hands. But there are other countries where if that's happening, there's great risk, especially in the 30 days following that surgery. And we'll get to those details in just a few minutes. We're going to talk Super Bowl because Zach Medeiros is going to join us on London Live. He is with the Toronto Argonauts. He's an area guy, and he'll break down everything that you need to know just so you can enjoy the game on Sunday, football fan or not. Jake Jeffrey's going to hang around. We'll talk some hockey. And I want to play you something because it really hits hard. And it's something that needs to be heard as often as it can. So you can find it this week on Around the OHL, our podcast that will be out a little later on today or very early tomorrow. But I want to play you some of our interview with Brock McGillis. Brock McGillis, a hockey player playing a few years ago with Windsor and Sault Ste. Marie, and he knew as a player that he was gay. But it's not something that he 
told his teammates. He didn't even come out to his family during his playing career. However, he's a guy that after meeting Brendan Burke, the son of Brian Burke, who has tragically passed away, died in a car crash, after meeting him, he realized he had to do something. He had to change some things. He had to change attitudes. He had to change words. And he's working to do that. And you know what? It's working out. It's happening. And Brock McGillis is a pretty incredible story. So we'll hear from him on London Live. But up next, surgery around the world. And when you see the line that says more people are dying of complications during and after surgery in the first 30 days, then people die from HIV, tuberculosis, and malaria-related conditions. That's something that we need to know more about. What's going wrong here? What needs to be fixed? That's next on London Live and Global News Radio 980 CFBL. If you have to go in for surgery, let's face it, it's a stressful time. If you knew that that surgery could save your life, it could also take your life, all of a sudden things are a little bit different. And there is something new that has come out that has certainly grabbed a lot of attention. And that's maybe because of the headline that comes with this particular document. More people die after surgery worldwide than from HIV, tuberculosis, and malaria combined. One of the co-authors of this report is Dr. Janet Martin, who's an associate professor at Western Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry and the director of Medici, which is, that's a cool name. I mean, it's, it's got a lot of historical value, but director of the Center for Medical Evidence, Decision Integrity, and Clinical Impact. And we have been able to track down Dr. Martin in Mumbai, India. Dr. Martin, how is Mumbai? Mumbai is beautiful and it's warm, and I think that's a bit different than what you've got over happening over there. Yeah, let, let's see, uh, guys. How do we how do we describe what we have here? Cold? Yeah, that's the reaction that we're getting here. The it's cold here, Doctor Martin. So um, you enjoy what you have, but the one thing that you are doing is is you are there in connection with something that has come out today. And I just want to read that headline again. We read it before the break, but I've got to read it again. More people die after surgery worldwide than from HIV, tuberculosis, and malaria combined. And you think about what HIV does. You think about what TB does worldwide. You think about what malaria does worldwide. We're talking about more people dying after surgery? All of a sudden, if I have any surgery in my future, Dr. Martin, I I don't want to have it. What does this mean? Hmm. Well, I mean, it's astounding, isn't it? Those are absolutely astounding numbers. And it it really wasn't um, what we expected to find when we set out to do this analysis. But the numbers are um, that big. So... It's, it surprised us because we, you know, typically we hear about the global big three, so HIV, AIDS, TB, and malaria, and that's where a lot of the money goes, right, in terms of philanthropy and research funding. Very little funding has gone towards surgery. And so with, with these kind of numbers, what we're trying to suggest with this 
is not that surgery is not needed because surgery is essential, right? Surgery itself can be life-saving and life-altering. But the point is that we need to have surgery that is safe and effective. And so with numbers like this, imagine if we actually put money and funding and resources and efforts and attention towards improving effective and safe surgery, we could save more lives than HIV, TB, and, and um, malaria combined. And to me, that's astounding. And, and I really think we need to start turning our attention here because that's how we could actually reduce the global death toll, we think, through doing surgery, to, or sorry, by doing research to figure out what types of interventions would reduce this type of death toll. Yeah, I'll come back to your, your question here about now, should we be afraid of undergoing surgery? I don't think we should be um, because surgery itself in high-income countries has become an extremely safe enterprise, right? Um, because we have the technology and the techniques and the human resources to do it very safely in high-income, high-resource settings, what our Lancet research shows is that the, there's a really big disparity uh, around the world. So low- and middle-income countries are the ones that are suffering. So more than 50% of these 4.2 million people that are dying every year are dying in the low-middle-income settings. And that's where the minority of surgeries are happening at all. So we really need to... We really need to reduce that disparity by implementing the safety systems, including the equipment and the people and the systems in place to achieve what's happening already in high-income countries in terms of this safety around surgery. We are talking with Dr. Janet Martin, Associate Professor at Western Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry. She's the Director of the Centre for Medical Evidence, Decision and Integrity and Clinical Impact as well, and has co-authored a paper that is certainly raising a lot of eyebrows. And it's great that Dr. Martin has been able to say, whoa, 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 let's keep in mind that surgery is needed, surgery is life-changing, surgery in many places is very safe, but the numbers show that around the world, 4.2 million people die every year within 30 days of surgery, and that 50% of those deaths, as Dr. Martin has outlined, are occurring in low- and middle-income countries where surgery is not exactly accessible and there can be other issues. If we're looking at low- to middle-income countries, Dr. Martin, how do we fix the problem without saying, okay, uh, let's just find billions of dollars for medical equipment and that'll polish it off no problem at all? Hmm. Yeah, that's a fantastic comment because uh, that's, that's often the first thing that comes to people mind, people's mind is how do we donate the tangible things uh, to hopefully kind of make it better through Band-Aid solutions. But one of the issues that we find um, in having visited and worked with a number of colleagues globally in surgery and anesthesia and perioperative care is that equipment donated from high-income countries uh, over to low- and middle-income settings doesn't naturally fit the context very well. And sometimes when, you know, when we're uh, going to work with our colleagues in low-middle-income settings and rural settings, 
in continental Africa or South America, Central America. Sometimes we go there and we find what we call equipment graveyards. And, and it's really unfortunate that, that we try to dump uh, what we think will fit for them on them just through these uh, donations. It might feel like we're doing good, but in the end, it's more work for them because it, it doesn't naturally fit their context. So I'll give you a couple of examples. There are a number of, of anesthesia machines which are only appropriate uh, for um, settings which have uh, uninterrupted electricity supplies uh, or you know, uh, uh, a grid work that allows for uninterrupted um, power supply. Well, anesthesia machines um, in low-income settings and some middle-income settings and rural settings uh, that where um, the electricity is, is, is constantly interrupted or often interrupted and it doesn't necessarily have a generation uh, generator backup, and those are the types of machines that we definitely don't need uh, in those settings because we don't want to put patients to sleep um, if we don't have a way to, to wake them up again. Um, so, you know, it's amazing the numbers of equipment that get donated and just end up in junkyards. So the point is for us to be working with our colleagues globally to find out what the missing pieces are. And then given those missing pieces what would be contextually relevant in order to ameliorate those gaps in care so that they can achieve the same and better uh, outcomes in terms of post-operative uh, mortality compared to the high-income settings. And that's actually a huge uh, project that we are working with in partnership with the University of Birmingham and the NIHR Global Surgery Unit, along with uh, partners including World Federation of Society of Anesthesiologists. And it's quite a large project to do just that uh, actively with our, with our partners working in um, low and middle income settings. With your trip to Mumbai, India, what is that hoping to accomplish? Right. So in Mumbai, um, typically what, what I do is uh, a lot of my international work, I team up one or two or three meetings in, in the same trip overseas. So for this particular meeting, uh, what we're doing is uh, I'm speaking at a critical care conference called Criticare, the International Society, uh, the Indian Society for Critical Care Medicine to talk about some of these issues around perioperative care. And the point is for us to share our uh, knowledge about research and evidence-based medicine and knowledge translation um, uh, with our colleagues, share ideas back and forth. And then I'm also meeting with uh, groups of surgeons and anesthesiologists in the area. I come to India about once a year to collaborate with some of our colleagues here who then are and will be working with us to identify gaps in care around surgery so that we can reduce post-operative mortality. Uh, so this is a, a stopping point about once a year um, in different provinces of India. 
Well, Dr. Martin, the paper again is raising a lot of eyebrows, which hopefully will gather a lot of attention and hopefully some solutions. We really appreciate you taking some time to explain that we're okay having surgery here, but we definitely need to pay attention to what's happening worldwide. All the best and travel safely. Thanks. My pleasure. Take care. Dr. Janet Martin, all the way from Mumbai, India. Dr. Martin is with the Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry. And if you missed any part of that interview, don't forget, London Live goes up as a podcast each and every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your favorite shows. So if you miss anything, you can always go back and find it there. You can find it through our website at 980cfpl.ca. We're going to continue on a medical trend, and we're going to talk about stop the bleed. If you saw someone, and you hate to think of this, you don't want to picture it, but it happens. If you saw someone who was bleeding profusely, you know what to do? Well, the numbers say not enough people do know what to do, and there's a move to try and change that. We'll get to that in 10 minutes. Next up, We've got news with Jacqueline LaBelle. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. It's good to be honest, right? It is. I firmly believe that. I try to be honest. Whatever I say, it's not made up, usually, unless I'm trying to tell a story. Some of the legendary stories... They might have a couple of details in them that, you know, make them sound better. I still love the story of Adam Dennis of the London Knights in the team of the Century team now, back when the Knights won the Memorial Cup in 2005. The legend of the story and what Dale Hunter and Adam Dennis will downplay, they're kind of different. But, you know, enough years go by and it all works out. The story is that Dale Hunter's working in his office and Adam Dennis walks by. Dale sees somebody walk by, doesn't know who it is. And then Adam walks by his office again. Dale says, Adam, is that you? Pokes his head in. He says, Dale, if you put me in net tomorrow, we will win the Memorial Cup. Dale Hunter puts him in net. 27 save shutout later. Knights win the Memorial Cup. That's a legendary story. Dale and Adam say, well, it was, yeah, it was, yeah, okay, it's kind of like that. But not as, not as movie script like that. I try to be honest. I had a great conversation with Ursula just now while Jacqueline LaBelle was bringing us the news. And she, she was not happy that I hadn't donated blood yet. She remembers the conversation that I had with Cheryl Miller. She says, what you have to do is you have to get the sleep mask. You put on the sleep mask. You get your favorite tunes, you put in the earbuds, you just don't listen, don't look, and do your job. Don't chicken out. It's all about giving blood, and I need to do it. Ursula, you're right. This weekend, I'm going to round up a sleep mask, I'm going to put together a playlist, a giving blood playlist, and we'll get this done. Cheryl, will you come with me? I need somebody to hold my hand. But it's important. I'm going to get this done. Next up, we're going to talk about not giving blood, but stopping bleeding. In fact, we'll talk with Allison Armstrong, who is the trauma program coordinator at London Health Sciences Center, about stop the bleed. And also, before the end of this hour, 
We are going to be talking with Rick and Nick Shute from the Jet Aircraft Museum in London. Earlier this week, you know what we found out on London Live? Pilots who fly in jet planes do not pass out because they actually clench their stomach muscles and their leg muscles and keep the blood where it's supposed to as they're going through their maneuvers. That's how they actually keep it in their heads. That's what we found out earlier this week on London Live. Well, turns out we've got quite the jet aircraft right here in London. we got to find out more details on that. It's called the Red Knight. That's coming up as well. This is London Live and Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We always like to think that if somebody was in a position where they needed our help, we could help them. Can't always work, but if somebody's life was at stake, could you help them? Sure, absolutely. Well, that's not really what they're finding in trauma centers and emergency rooms all over North America. And that is prompting something called Stop the Bleed. Joining us right now to tell us more about it is Allison Armstrong, Trauma Program Coordinator at London Health Sciences Center. Allison, how are you? Very well, thank you. Good. I'm hoping my day continues to go very well, too, because when we start talking about this, you start to realize just how easy traumatic injuries can happen in life. And I don't know if we ask the question, if something like this happened, would I have any clue about what to do? Is that a question that maybe we need to ask a little more often? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We know uh, from our experience in the trauma room that uh, we receive a lot of patients uh, into our trauma room every year who are bleeding and uh, and really could use some uh, some help and assistance from uh, from the public um, uh, to to increase their survivability. Okay. Um, First thing we're going to be talking about, and and we warn people coming into the segment, we're not going to talk about anything that that gets us all feeling squeamish, but we need to talk about something called stop the bleed. A lot of people will say, yeah, I don't, give me a broken arm, give me a bump on the head, give me anything. I just don't want anything that deals with blood. How do we properly deal with a traumatic injury if someone is bleeding? Well, that's what this course is all about. In fact, it's a, a Stop the Bleed course is a course that's created by the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma uh, and a course that is new to us that uh, we're going to start to offer to uh, London and region. And it's all about ways in which we can, one, identify severe bleeding and then, two, uh, use some tools and some methods in which to stop that bleeding and increase that survivability of that patient. When we talk about bleeding, obviously there's there's a paper cut and then there's something that's a whole lot worse than a paper cut. How serious can someone who is bleeding, how serious can their situation become and how quickly can that happen? We know that uh, patients can die in as little as five minutes uh, if they have severe bleeding, if not controlled rapidly. So that just means that we need to have an educated and empowered public that can act to reduce these preventable deaths. We're talking with Allison Armstrong, who is the Trauma Program Coordinator at London Health Sciences Centre, and we're talking about something called Stop the Bleed. And ultimately, it's a program that is now coming to Canada. It's been in the United States for a little while, and it offers you the opportunity to learn more. Now, when does that next opportunity come up, Allison? 
Well, we're just launching it today. We are going to offer monthly courses run at the Victoria Hospital uh, for the general public. We're also offering um, our services to come out to workplaces, uh, to community events, to gatherings where we can uh, teach the course to uh, to people on site. And uh, so we're going to take uh, phone calls and, and, and bookings um, and see where it goes. Now, immediately people are going to say, oh, okay, well, well, how much is that going to cost me? Let me ask that question. How much does that cost? Uh, this course is a free course, in fact, and it's meant to be a free course because really we want to educate the uh, the public and, and not limit uh, the reach that it can have um, so that we can have maximum effect and help the maximum number of people. How much does that show how serious this subject and maybe how passed over this subject has been? I don't know. I think it shows really more the uh, dedication to the community by our hospital system, who's really supporting us to do this. Um, they have been teaching it in Toronto, and they just started teaching it in Ottawa um, as uh, other trauma centers. So uh, we all recognize that um, this is this is an important uh, public safety program that we can bring out to uh, to our region, um, and uh, and I think it's just we're really thrilled that LHSC is supporting us to do this. If somebody is hearing this now and thinking, you know what, I do have first aid training, but I'm not sure that I have enough, or maybe I don't have any first aid training, is this something you could take before or after a first aid course? Absolutely. And in fact, you don't need to have first aid training in order to take this course. This course is meant for everybody and anyone to uh, to take. So what we go through is a, you know, essentially identifying what a severe bleed looks like, figuring out if it is a severe situation, um, activating EMS as soon as possible. And then we go through some methods and, and, uh, and teach them how to use some tools on how to stop, uh, stop that bleeding. Um, and then most importantly, if there is a multiple casualty situation, identifying who's most injured uh, so that you can um, communicate that with the paramedics once they get on scene. And we're not talking about a great deal of time that you need in order to take something like this, are we? No, uh, you know, it's a modifiable course. Uh, we can uh, do it, we could probably squeeze it into an hour. It's probably meant for about an hour and a half to two hours time. So it's not a great deal of, of time uh, that is needed to, uh, to teach it Allison, or to learn it. Allison Armstrong with us, Trauma Program Coordinator with London Health Sciences Centre. Allison, if somebody wanted more information, like you said, this is kind of brand new to this area, brand new to LHSC, what do they do? So they can call us directly at our uh, direct phone number, which is 519-667-6795, or they can email us at trauma at lhsc.on.ca. Thanks so much for the time today, and thank you for helping to bring this to us. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Allison Armstrong. Stop the bleed is what it's called. So if you contact LHSC or if you do what Allison just said to do, she's the trauma program coordinator at LHSC, and you can set that up. They can come right to your workplace. This is free, and they can condense it to 60 minutes, runs about 90 minutes if you have that. And again, it's, it's about saving lives. And the reason that this has taken place, as Allison pointed out, if you're just joining us, this comes from the United States where they identify the issue first. And they said, yeah, we've got too many people coming to emergency rooms 
And the problem is no one has known what to do because of a massive injury, one in which they are losing blood, and then they arrive and perhaps they lose their life when there was a better chance of saving their life had somebody known how to treat the injury. So they want to make sure and get this message out. So if you have a way to to spread that message to either your employees or get it for yourself, then please go ahead and do it because uh, it could make a massive difference, life and death difference to somebody in the future. After news coming up in about 11 minutes from now, we're going to talk some Super Bowl stuff. There are some numbers that have been put together that show just how much money is wrapped up in the NFL. I cannot believe the numbers. And if you look at the gambling revenue right now, I mean, you can't really add up the stuff that's done illegally. And that's been estimated at $4 billion in the sports world, not just NFL, but sports world entirely. They will begin to bring in money through gambling. It's such a tiny piece right now compared to what it's probably going to be in the next little while. So we'll run down some of those numbers. If you know the best chicken wings, where not necessarily the place to get it, but in making them, if you know what to do, do you have to own a deep fryer to make a good wing? Can you make a good oven-baked wing at home if you're having people over for Super Bowl? If you can help us out with some of those little tips and tricks, what do you do with your wings? When do you put the sauce on? How high do you cook them at? Because making them at home and, and eating them when you're in a restaurant... It is different, but it doesn't have to be, right? You have to own a deep fryer to make a decent wing. Email Mike at 980cfpl.ca if you have any good wing tips for us, because Super Bowl is coming. We'll talk with Zach Medeiros of the Toronto Argos, and we'll get his thoughts on the Super Bowl. He follows the sport of football like you wouldn't believe. He'll break this one down for us. And we're also going to hear from Brock McGillis, who, when he was playing in the OHL, knew that he was gay, but... Never came out to anybody, not his family, not his teammates. Now, that's changing. Next up, though, we're going to talk about an absolute hidden gem in the city of London. It lives at the Jet Aircraft Museum. Rick and Nick Shute, who are a big part of the Jet Aircraft Museum, are going to join us in studio. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. It is time to talk about the Red Knight from the Jet Aircraft Museum in London, Ontario. Please welcome to the studio Rick and Nick Shute. Rick, Nick, welcome to the studio. Good to be here. Thank you very much. To describe flying in a T-33 Red Knight, have have both of you been up in this or Not no? Yet. Not yet. Not yet. No. Not yet. Not yet. Okay. No. Well, then it'd be it. It's a mystery. I got to ride in a T thirty three Thunderbird. Are we talking about the same thing? Not really, because to <laughs> some different... of us, a jet is a jet. <laughs> to you guys, that's not the case, right, Nick? Yeah. Uh, well, how, how fast was your Thunderbird? Couldn't tell you. Fast. Can I tell you? It was really, really fast, <laughs> and it went that... upside down a lot. Um. Yeah, our, our, we actually saw flights in the back of our Red Knight uh, ever since we've got it airborne last August. Um, we actually promote that for our museum. So there has been, I don't know, Nick, what do you think? Was there? We've had about three member flights so yeah. far. Okay. Yeah. So we've been we've been taking up people, paid passengers in the back. Uh, we've also been doing a lot of uh, training flights since August when we got our jet going. Uh, we participated in Air Show London last September as well. 
So yeah, we've been we've been doing a lot of flying with the uh, the jet. And it's it's pretty it's a pretty airplane. Well, if you remember the plane poll that was held by Jesse's Journey earlier this year, this is the plane that yeah. everybody was pulling. That's correct. <laughs> this is the one, and yeah. uh, you know what? It took five people, but you could pull it, and we had one guy who did it all by himself. <laughs> so these uh, these are things that are this jet is something that you can see at air shows. You do take it around to air shows. How many can you do in a year? Uh, we really can do as many as, uh, you know, we, we can really, uh, we're able to go all across North America if we want to, it's just a matter of who wants us. So that's why we're, we're really trying to get the jet out there this year. And, uh, we're so far, we're planning on going to uh, a number of air shows and, uh, it's just, it, it's a very unique aircraft. Uh, this is the first one, uh, painted like this in Canada in, in so, so long. So we really want to get the airplane out there. We want people to see it. We want to share the story of the Red Knight. And we want to also share the story of the Jarecraft Museum because it is such a an important piece uh, to the puzzle and keeping these aircraft going. So yeah, the, the air shows are incredibly important. We really want to show the jet. We want to show its aerodynamic capabilities. We want to tell a little bit of history, and we really want to show off the paint. I mean, when you see a picture of it, it, it really is it really is a nice looking plane. So and when it's in the air, it's just that much more speechless and priceless yeah. when it goes by. We could also rent our museum out for birthday parties for kids and stuff. Um, our museum actually has a flight simulator room where the kids come in and learn how to, f- all these jets are actually on a flight simulator in our computers in our room. So they can do flight sim when they're there. So like Nick says, the education part of it and the fun part, we have um, more and more, we're getting actual simulators in the building where kids can sit in cockpits and stuff. Um, just to round up, you know, the experience when people come to the museum, I mean, the, ultimately the jets are the draw. We have another jet, exactly the same as the Red Knight, which is just undergoing restoration. We think it's probably 80 to 90% of the way there. We're hoping to have it flying this summer. Um, and then we want to paint it up as the Golden, Golden Hawk, Hawk. Golden Hawk, Golden. which is another all gold plane, another take um, take back to the history of, <clears throat> excuse me, the Royal Canadian Air Force which Nick can tell you about this jet used to fly back in 1958. Yeah, the the Red Knight was 1958 to 1969. And the primary uh, purpose of the Red Knight was to to fly at air show venues that otherwise, uh, you know, spectators wouldn't get the chance to see a performance like this. So um, through all the years that it, it served, it was the, the first solo aerobatic uh, demonstration team that the Canadian Air Force had. So to kind of put that in perspective, you saw at Air Show London the CF-18 Hornet, which is Canada's current frontline fighter. Uh, this would have been, you know, the equivalent to to that day back in the 1950s and 60s. So the Red Knight has a whole lot of history to it. Um, it, it flew for many years doing uh, venues all around Canada. And it was actually only supposed to kind of be formed for three air shows and ended up doing over 600 so it was, uh, it completely kind of took over the air show circuit back then and, and flew at so many venues. And uh, our other jet, our other CT-133, uh, which is registration uh, 500, uh, was actually a former Golden Hawk. And the Golden Hawk was another team that the uh, Canadian Air Force had. And uh, they, they flew many, many air shows. And they had two T-33s, uh, much like the Red Knight, that were used as support aircraft to kind of travel to each show. And they were painted up in... Uh, these very, very nice, vibrant, golden colors. And uh, we had the same aircraft that was a support aircraft for the team uh, back then. And that's what we want to restore back and, and bring it into its golden hot colors. So it's, it, it's again, like, it's not many people really realize what's actually going on here, but it is, it's, it's such a cool operation we got going. 
we have so much stuff in the works, and that's why we're, we're really eager to push our name out there and, and allow people to kind of see what we're doing. Yeah, and thank AM980 and yourself for having us here to explain to the Londoners just what's in their backyard. A, a few people come out, but to actually know that this is right there and they could come anytime, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, 10 yeah. to 4 when we're open, to come in, it's all donation. You can walk around the hangar. We give tours and stuff. We have jet blast days where, where it's like an open house and stuff. It's usually on our calendar on our website. Gentlemen, it's been great having you here. <clears throat> Thanks so much for the time. All right, thank you. Thank you. Nick Shute, Rick Shute from the Jet Aircraft Museum in London. We are going to take a break for news. Gentlemen, uh, I'll walk you out. And then afterward, we are going to talk some Super Bowl. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. It is Super Bowl weekend. Rams, Patriots, somehow Tom Brady is back there again. In five minutes, we'll talk with Zach Medeiros of the Toronto Argos. This guy eats and sleeps and breathes and chews sports, football especially. You do that when you're a football player. And he'll help us to break down the Super Bowl so that you know what to look for. You'll sound like an expert, even if you've never seen an NFL game in your life. Zach will help you out five minutes from now. But if we look at something put together by CNBC, they decided to put some dollar figures to what's going on in the football world. Now, the NFL doesn't like to disclose the value of its contract with TV networks anymore because it used to do that, and then it got really, really big. So they don't like to do that. But CNBC's done some digging, and they say that they make probably... Three billion a year from CBS, Fox, and NBC. Three billion dollars per year, and right now they're in a nine-year contract that will run through until 2022. So that's made them 27 billion dollars. And while they don't release a lot of data, one team has to. One team has to give its finances because it's owned by the fans. The Green Bay Packers have to release all of their financials. So in the 2017 fiscal year, that's what CNBC dug up, they reported revenue of $454.9 million. That's not what the team is worth. That's how, money, how much money they made in 2017. That included... $255 million in national revenue, and that includes TV rights money and then other TV deals. So that's pretty wild. You own the team? Yeah, uh, just a second before your season starts here. Uh, can you hang on a second while I fill out this check? $255.9 million. There you go. Have a good year. Whew. Okay, then they have sponsorship deals, and revenue is basically looked at as being about $1.39 billion for the 2018-19, just this little snippet of 19 in that. 
they also have a casino deal done up now. Now, this is where revenue is going to grow. This will seem really, really little. Look at us. We were talking about $3 billion a year in TV rights, over a billion dollars in sponsorship revenue, and then, oh, well, their casino deal is only worth $30 million. Just wait a bit. That's going to grow. And then for the Super Bowl, you've got Super Bowl ads. And every year, it seems that those are going up. Now, according to CNBC, they're selling for roughly $175,000 a second, a 30-second spot in the United States. During the Super Bowl, $5.25 million dollars. That's $175,000 a second. No wonder you get great spots. They've got to make sure that you do. And then you get the money that's doled out to the people on the field. Winners of the Super Bowl last year made an estimated $112,000 each. For losing, you get $56,000 each. Referees get between four and 10000 a game. So, you know, that's not bad. Referees are always talked about in the NFL as, hey, we should make these guys full-time. Uh, according to CNBC, their annual salary can be about 201000 How'd you like to do that by working 16 weeks a year, plus a couple of playoff games that allow you to make more? What do you mean, work full-time? Full-time at what? And then you've got retailers who are making about $14.8 billion on food and drink and jersey sales, and everything else. Wow. Wow. No wonder, no wonder the National Football League is everywhere. They can afford to be. Well, let's talk some National Football League football, along with some Canadian Football League football. The Grey Cup doesn't come up for a few months yet. However, training camps will open in May, and this guy will be there. Zach Medeiros of the Toronto Argos joins us to talk about the Super Bowl and some other stuff. Zach, how are things? You know, things are pretty good. I uh, just got back from a little upper body lift. Um, Fridays are kind of slow for me, so right now I'm just trying to figure out what I'm going to do with the rest of my day. And talking to you guys now, which is pretty exciting, so I'm just you know happy to be here. I've always wondered what a guy who handles kicking and punting duties does when it's minus 20, minus 30 outside. Because I, I, I don't think it's probably safe to set up a tee anywhere and kick balls, is it? Ooh, well, yeah, I'm happy that, well, our season ends, depending how far we go, but once we reach playoffs and, you know, if you make the great cup, which is usually around late November, um, we've been fortunate these past couple of years uh, that the weather hasn't been too, too bad. I mean, but if you're outside kicking right now, geez, it's like <laughs> kicking a rock. Yeah. And there's no point in practicing that, right? In this weather? Yeah. Is that you're asking? Yeah. Oh, no. Honestly, I think most teams, like NFL right now, obviously, when you get to the Super Bowl, most games are going to be inside, right? I mean, they want to get the, um, you know, they want, each team has their, their own traits and niche as far as a great offense, great defense, and they don't want any of those things to, um, to, to like, suffer, right? So they're not going to risk playing that outdoors. Um, but come playoff time, yeah, I think that they're going to do as, as best as they can to kind of monitor the temperature and reps you have because the last thing you want is, you know, some bonehead injury from practicing outside because it's too cold and someone pulling up late with a, with a hamstring or something silly like that, right? So, I mean, when you're getting paid millions, you want to do your best to keep your, your uh, best athletes healthy at that point. Zach Medeiros of the Toronto Argos joining us as now we begin to break down things you can watch for in the Super Bowl. We'll get to the Rams in a second, but 
we've got to start with these New England Patriots. Zach, seriously, how are they here again? Because going through the year, sure, they were a good team, but uh, maybe it was time for Kansas City to make it. Maybe, maybe it was just time for anyone else to make it. How are they here? Well, geez, how much time do I have? You know what? I'm going to start with saying, you know, I'm a, I'm a Steelers fan. I grew up a Steelers fan. My whole family, my, my dad, we, we, we cheer for the Steelers. So the fact that New England just, geez, the, how long has it been for the Tom Brady year? I'd say, what, since 2001? And now That's we're, it. What, 2019? That's oh, when it geez, started. Two decades almost that we, we've been seeing this. And I feel like if they're not winning the Super Bowl, they're right there, or they're winning the AFC Championship, one of those two things. And honestly, it just comes down to consistency. Right, I mean, it's the system. They don't do anything too complex that's going to wow you, um, offensively or d- defensively. They're just so efficient with the, with their system and Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. And you know, it's one of those things too. You know, and every every once in a while, people start to count them out whenever they, they lose a game here and there. And then that's why I know, I'm like, you know, what? this is when it happens. And then Tom Brady starts to turn it on whenever people start to count them out. It started with LA; they're the underdog. Kansas City; they're the huge underdog. And look how those two, you know, two games turned out. Here we are now. They're back at yet another Super Bowl. And it's funny because I remember um, throughout my CFL season, I don't really um, keep tabs too much on the NFL. I do with the Steelers, but since my season's going on, you know, I like to watch my other buddies playing um, throughout the CFL year. And I start seeing all these, you know, re- reports and news articles saying, oh, the, the dynasty is coming to an end. And at that point, I'm thinking, oh, like, are the Patriots uh, struggling? What's going on with them? And I see the record, and they're like, Seven and two, seven and three, <laughs> the, the second seed in the AFC, and I'm like, oh my god, like come on, like they're having a great year. So I, I think everyone's just looking for like they they start nitpicking at the little things for them to drop off, and they just they just keep it going. I mean, at this rate, Tom Brady can keep playing till he's fifty. When you look at a veteran quarterback, and you've been able to see one, although he's gone through some injuries, in Ricky Ray, you've got that veteran presence. How much of success can start from just the team going? Don't worry, he's got it. Yeah, well, so with Ricky Ray, I actually I got there after he had his neck injury, and he's doing a lot better now. Um, I can use him and Harry Burst as an example because when I was in Ottawa, when we won the Grey Cup, both those things that those guys have in common is they're consistent in their daily routine. They're the first uh, person that show up at the team facility watching film around 5 a.m., and they're the last ones to leave. And every day it's the exact same thing. And they get to that age now, you know, Henry Burst, so my first year in Ottawa was his last year. And he was 41 years old. And I'm like, how is he still doing this at this age? And he's in better shape than I am. And Ricky Ray is the exact same thing. Even though he was hurt, he was the first one there, last one to leave. And I think it's just consistency in the routine. And they're willing to ask any questions you have of them. And I think that's how they get get the job done, to be honest with you. We're talking football with Zach Medeiros of the Toronto Argos heading toward this weekend's Super Bowl. Okay, that's the Patriots. Now, if you look at the Rams, this is a team that had been a bit of a mess for a while when they were in St. Louis, then they moved to Los Angeles. But a young head coach comes in in Sean McVay. Next thing you know, they draft number one overall because they hadn't been playing very well. They get Jared Goff as a quarterback. What exactly do you point to for the turnaround that this team has had? Because it's been 180-like. Mm. Well, you know what? Again, it's like us with the Toronto Argos. I think that one year, another year of experience with their young young guys in the offense and defense side of the ball, plus some free agent signings they had in the offseason with adding Marcus Peters and the Dom Kansu, just to name two of those guys, um, all-star players. 
Um, and again, you look at the weapons they have. I mean, it's just another year, right? They got Robert Woods. They got Todd Gurley, who's arguably the, the best running back in the league, which is hard for me to say, even though Le'Veon Bell didn't play for the Steelers this year. I mean, you, you look at their lineup and it's just, you know, how, how can you compete against that? And like Jared Goff, just another year of experience. And he had a great year. What was it? Over 4,000 yards, 32 touchdowns. Um, I think that's what it comes down to. And then you look at Sean McVay, just another, like the Bill Belichick protege, right? I mean, he's 30 years old, 30, however old he is, 32, 33. And he's already, I think he's going to be one of the best coaches to ever come out of the NFL by the time he's all, you know, all said and done. Zach, when you are watching the game on Sunday, what is going to tell you who has the advantage early on? What are you going to be looking for? Mm, I'm going to look at the Rams' defense and how they, they shake up against uh, stuff in that Patriots' offense. Um, and another thing, too, is the Rams' offense and how they use Todd Gurley. You know, I, I, I love what C.J. Anderson has brought to the game for them the, the past, uh, however long it's been, four or five weeks, but um, the past couple of games, well, other than the Dallas game, Todd Gurley hasn't really had that much of an impact. And I think, and you and I both know, I mean, when you're going up against the Patriots, you have to use all your weapons, especially Todd Gurley. He's arguably one of the best players in the league. So they have to somehow uh, find a way to get him involved. And I don't know what was going on last week. I, I read some things about him having some knee inflammation, which is part of the reason why he didn't play that much last week. But uh, they have to find a way to get him involved. Because if they have him and C.J. Anderson, plus, you know, you have Brandon Cooks, you got Robert Woods. Um, you have a chance. But the biggest thing I'm looking for is that defensive side of the ball because we saw a lot uh, two weeks ago against New Orleans. They kind of got off to a shaky start, and they're, they're behind the eight ball, 14 nothing, pretty quick. So, I mean, if they're able to stop or at least disrupt the timing of Tom Brady, I think they have a shot. Zach, we'll see what happens come Sunday. It has been great talking football with you. We'll have to do this again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Zach Medeiros, Toronto Argos, on this weekend's Super Bowl. Just remember what he said. You can always go back on the podcast and say that on Sunday, and you'll sound like a genius, even if you've never watched an NFL game. Super Bowl can be a lot of fun. It's a lot of hype, but it can also be a lot of fun. Up next, Jake Jeffrey, who's been sticking around, nicest guy in the world, is going to join us. We'll talk some OHL hockey. He's got his new Jaker's Dozen out on Around the OHL. And so we'll look at some London notes on what's happening. Around the OHL, this is London Live and Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Beautiful sunshine. We do have some warm temperatures coming. We do have some complications coming. I think we need to go out and clear some storm drains this weekend. Who wants to do that? Hey, what are you doing this weekend? I don't know. Maybe check out the Super Bowl. Certainly clear some storm drains. That'd be a great time. Yeah? Where are you clearing yours? Can I come? I had a big shovel. One of those ice picks. Yeah, let's go out and clear some storm. Are you even allowed to clear storm drains? I probably shouldn't be out there. Every single city worker is saying to me, now, what are you talking about? You can't touch those. Do not touch those. I don't know if you can. We should check into that because we are going to get some warming temperatures, maybe a little melting Maybe a little rain. We'll have more with John Wilson in just a little while. Right now, we have an opportunity to talk some OHL hockey. We have OHL hockey on 980 CFPL tonight and tomorrow. The London Knights are at home to the Barry Colts tonight. And then tomorrow, Military Appreciation Night as the Kitchener Rangers come to town. Jake Jeffrey joins us right now to talk about his latest Jaker's Dozen. Jake, thanks for sticking around to talk some hockey. 
I always got time to talk some hockey. Well, we're going to be talking with Brock McGillis. We're going to take you to that conversation that you can actually find on our Around the OHL podcast. You can find that on Apple Podcast or Google Podcast, wherever you get your favorite shows. And if you check out AroundTheOHL.com, you'll find a brand new Jaker's Dozen, where Jake runs through some of the best stories in the junior hockey world. And this week, Brock McGillis gets a mention. And we'll talk about that again in about uh, 15 minutes from now on London Live. But Jake, let's look at some of the other stuff you dig into. Well, Londoner Isaac Radcliffe has been on quite the streak as of late. Uh, the Gulf Storm captain has points now in 13 straight games, 22 points, 14 goals in that stretch there as well. Uh, he's certainly been one of the bright spots for that Storm team as of late. He seemed to be so excited when Nick Suzuki joined the Guelph Storm. I think he might have been the most excited guy. Maybe even more excited than general manager George Burnett, who's a former London Knight. And it's kind of been showing in his play to this point. And so we've got a couple of streaks to watch going into this weekend. Again, Isaac Radcliffe is a Londoner. you got Liam Foodie of the London Knights, who has scored goals in 10 straight games, has points in 11 consecutive games. So we'll see if that point streak can continue tonight and tomorrow as the Knights are at home. Uh, another good streak in the OHL as far as a goaltending concern is Stephen Dillon. Six straight wins for him as the Ice Dogs, seven straight wins for them and a .941 save percentage in that span to go along with a shutout as well. If, if you're not as good at math, that's 194 saves and 206 shots. He's been doing quite well as a late. <laughs> He's a great big guy and I don't know if you saw the story about him and the Pittsburgh Penguins one time. Have you ever seen his Penguin story? I'm not sure if I have. He didn't have a development camp to go to. And hadn't really heard from anybody and hadn't been drafted. And so he's at home and he's just kind of feeling down. Development camps go on in the summertime in hockey. And it's a chance for players to get an invite, show their stuff to NHL teams. All of a sudden his phone rings. One of the Pittsburgh Penguins goalies couldn't make the development camp because of illness or injury or something like that. And they said, uh, Stephen, would you be interested in coming to our development camp. And he said, interested? Absolutely. And they said, okay, there's a car waiting for you right outside your driveway right now. Could you grab some things and get into it? And he looked outside, and there was a car. The Pittsburgh Penguins had come to pick him up in order to get him to their development camp. Sort of like when you're younger and you ask your parents, hey, do you mind if my friend Bill comes over? Oh, I guess so. Okay, good. He's already in my room, so that's all right. So it's one of those things. You're kind of hoping he says yes, and it was a good experience for I mean, what uh, what OHLer would have passed up on that opportunity, right? Oh, it's been great. Well, he is somebody that's going to be tough to beat once the playoffs arrive. I agree, and that Niagara Ice Dog is likely tough to beat as well. Uh, and speaking of tough to beat, uh, Ottawa 67's big reason why is uh, Tell F- Fellowber up front, uh, Ty Fellowber up front. Anybody who uh, listens to uh, the podcasts or stuff like that will know that we're big fans of him. And uh, there's reasons why. 51 goals now in 49 games. you got to be consistent to put up those kind of numbers. And that's one thing that jumps out for me. He's only gone back-to-back games without scoring a goal three times this year. And he's never gone more than two games without scoring a goal. So that is when you can expect that night after night after your top guys at Bodes Welcome Playoff Time. He's only been held pointless this season five times. So five times he steps on the ice and does not record a point. Strange thing about that, two of those five came against the London Knights. He did not record a point against the London Knights this year. They used to have those old Wayne Gretzky things where they would have these big charts and it would show all the points that Gretzky had and usually picked up a point against every team. You score over 200 points in a season, yeah. you Bound to happen. Yeah, Yeah. I think the Buffalo Sabres were the team that he torched the most, but... 
with Ty Felliber, you could make that same kind of chart because he picks up points and goals. He's still on pace to be right around that 70-goal mark. We haven't seen a 70-goal mm-hmm. scorer since John Tavares did it as a 16-year-old with the Oshawa Generals. And at the beginning of the year, we are wondering if an NHL team would take a chance on him. Now we're looking at which NHL team's going to take a chance at him because I'm sure he'll have his options. He was in London with the Toronto Maple Leafs at their rookie camp, yeah. and he didn't earn a contract then, but he was a little younger. Now he's a little older and yeah, he'll either get drafted or sometimes it's almost better to be signed because you think about the number of players that get into an organization where for whatever reason they're down the depth chart at their position or they've got first round picks galore that they're going to give opportunities to because they're first round picks. And if you can kind of pick your destination, sometimes that actually works out in a player's favor. You get a bit more choice in the matter. You look at Aaron Luchuk last year going in the Ottawa 60 or Ottawa Senators organization. And actually, we're talking about Maple Leaf pro, uh, prospects. Matt Hollowell leads all the D-men in scoring up in uh, Sault Ste. Marie, 16 goals and uh, 38 assist from the back end, so he leads uh, all D-men in scoring from that front. Another overage story has been an impressive year for the overagers. And maybe one of the reasons Mac Hollowell, that the Toronto Maple Leafs, when they acquired Jake Muzzin from the LA Kings, put Sean Dursey into the deal because he's a very similar defenseman mm-hmm. to Mac Hollowell, has a lot of offensive ability, but if you look at how Hollowell has developed, Dursey maybe had the bigger name, you're able to put him into that deal and get yourself Jake Muzzin, who's won a Stanley Cup. And you still got a guy like Mac Hollowell to fall back on, yep. Yeah. Well, Jake, thank you for the Jakers Dozen. Check out all of the details at AroundTheOHL.com. And Jake is going to stick with us through news. And then we're going to talk with Brock McGillis. And this is a story that you need to hear. Brock McGillis was playing hockey in the OHL with Windsor and Sault Ste. Marie. And he knew he was gay. But he didn't come out and tell anybody. But he eventually got to the point where he was able to do that. And he'll take us through that story when London Live continues. Next up, Jacqueline LaBelle with news. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We have a very interesting segment coming up. We are going to hear from Brock McGillis. And Brock McGillis is someone who has a website right now. You can go to that website, brockmcgillis.com. He's a former OHLer. While he was playing in the OHL, he knew, of course, that he was gay. But he didn't tell anybody about it. However, a meeting with Brendan Burke, Brian Burke's son, began to change things. And tragically, the world lost Brendan Burke in a car crash. But Brock McGillis has continued to make a difference. And he's making a big difference when it comes to things like the words we use, some of the attitudes in hockey dressing rooms, or let's just say locker rooms in sports in general. And we had a chance to talk with him as part of Around the OHL. And I want to bring you a segment of that. The show is available in its entirety right now. In fact, I've tweeted that out. If after you hear the first part of the interview, you would like to hear more, because there is more, you'll be able to find the link to that at Stubbs980. And that's there right now. But in a moment, you're going to hear from Brock McGillis. He'll tell his story, and he'll talk about the difference that he's trying to make in this world. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Imagine having something that you know about you, but you can't tell anybody. 
You just got to keep it in. Or you just don't feel comfortable telling anybody. You're worried about how someone would react. So again, you keep it in. And you wind up being isolated because of that. And that leads to other things. And that leads to even more other things. We've got a lot of people in our world that go through that. And there's been a lot of talk about a number of different things this week, mental health being one of them, but it goes beyond that. It goes simply to, I have this thing, and I don't know how to tell anybody. I have this thing, and I don't know if I can tell anybody. Well, this week on Around the OHL, we had an opportunity to talk with Brock McGillis, and I want to take you to that. Again, you can go to the podcast. You can find that. I've tweeted the link at Stubbs980. You'll be able to find it on on iTunes, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you find your favorite shows. It's a weekly show that Jake Jeffrey and I do. And Brock McGillis gave us a whole lot of time this week, and he told his story. And here's how it started. Well, um, I played in the OHL. I played minor pro but um, and at Concordia. But through that, I was struggling. I was um, struggling with my sexuality. I, um, I deep down knew I was gay, but I suppressed it because I didn't think you could be a hockey player and be a gay man. So I hit it, and because of that, I was dealing with a lot of internal struggle and uh, self-hate and hatred towards the world at points. Um, and through my career, I was constantly injured, uh, likely due to the fact that I was depressed. And I was um, suicidal. I just wanted to die rather than continue trying to have this internal battle inside of me. And I began to drink heavily by the age of 18, playing in the OHL, drinking almost every day, and hit it from everyone, my family, my team, um, everyone, um, just to try and numb and suppress what I was going through. Brock, if we think about somebody in that situation right now, all of a sudden there are more outlets. All of a sudden some of the stigma has changed, but you were playing at a time when nothing had changed. How did that kind of affect things? Did you go looking for people to talk to, or did you find that there there just wasn't anybody to to talk to? You know, I I think I had resources at my disposal if if I chose to use them. In hindsight, looking back. At it, I, I could have told my parents my fear of telling my family, and I knew my family would be incredibly supportive and inclusive. Um, but they were, my brother played in the OHL. He was a first-round pick in the O and played pro. And my dad scouted in the OHL at the time and was also, he coached minor hockey and junior hockey for 30 years. I feared that if they heard the language used in locker rooms, that the commonly used language, the homophobic language, the sexist language, they would be um, more in tune to it knowing that I was gay and ultimately stand up to it. And a byproduct of that might have been that I was outed in the process, which would jeopardize my ability to play hockey anymore in my mind. 
Um, I mean, so I didn't tell anyone. I didn't look for somebody to talk to. I just hit it. I, I numbed it with alcohol. Um, it wasn't until I was, geez, 26. At 23, I, I decided I had to figure myself out and started dating somebody. Um, and I dated somebody for three years without a soul knowing. Um, but at 26 or 27, I met Brendan Burke and that's when I started talking to people and that's when I came out to him and, uh, forged a friendship with him and I started telling some people in my life. How did you guys meet? Um, funny enough, I, um, I saw he was being interviewed. I was watching a Leafs game. I was living in Montreal at the time, which I probably shouldn't have been watching a Leafs game, but um, I was watching a Leafs game, I think it was on TSN, and between periods, this kid was being interviewed, and he was talking about following in his father's footsteps, making the NHL as a general manager, and I realized at that point that it was Brian Burke's son, and then he started talking about being gay, and I wasn't really paying attention to the interview until I heard that, and then my ears perked up. And at this point, I was like, I was playing university hockey. My career, I'd taken a step back from it. I was just recently out of my first relationship with a man, and nobody knew. And I heard this, and I, I'm, I mean, the hockey world's a pretty small place, so I was able to, um, you know, find him on social media through mutual friends, and then. Um, I think he responded to me when I messaged him because we had mutual friends and um, we just, I, I reached out to him and just said, Hey, I saw your interview and you know, I, uh, this is who I am and let's talk. And from that, we talked, we spoke almost every day. I mean, I think for both of us, it was a bit of a relief. He was thrust into the media spotlight and nobody really understood being in hockey and being gay. And for me, I just felt like I was on an island alone. And to have that person that I could talk to about my breakup, let alone being gay or hockey, was just such a relief. Now, now Brock, you, you speak about that time when, when you, you saw something like Brendan, someone like Brendan speaking out publicly like this, and, and you know it, it motivated you and it kind of gave you the courage to, to do so eventually as well. Now here almost... 10 years later, you're almost on the flip side of things where maybe kids who are on the other side look to you for help and to find that courage. Yeah, it's been a journey. Um, when uh, Brendan had messaged me one day and he said, I can't wait for the day that you're out to your family like I am to mine. And I panicked. I kind of threw my phone like away. I just didn't want to see that message. And I never answered him. And two days later, Brendan passed away in a car accident. Those ended up being the last words he ever said to me. And prior to that, Brendan and I always spoke about, you know, if I made the game, if I made it in as a player and he made it in management, we would, you know, create a shift in sport culture. And then he passed on. So in my mind, I was like, no, I'm still gonna, I'm still gonna create the shift. It was just a matter of when. And back then, I, I mean, I had opportunity even then uh, through the births and different people to do stuff. But I, I wasn't ready. I, I mentally 
wasn't ready. I didn't know what it was like to be a gay man. I was hiding it. I, I, my, you know, mental health wasn't at its prime state, and and I had to work through my struggles and everything I had gone through prior to this point, and almost like PTSD, and get to a place where I was happy and strong and content. And ultimately, I got to that place, and um, I decided to create a change. Um, a few incidents happened that sort of motivated me. Um, I had a hockey association tell me I couldn't work with their players anymore. Uh, and not long after that, there was an incident at Pulse Nightclub in Orlando where 49 uh, members of the LGBT community were murdered just for being out at a bar. And for people don't realize how, like, impactful that is for the gay community because, you know, it doesn't matter where you are. Even in Canada, you can be in Toronto and two men walking down the street holding hands will be called names. You know, and, and if it's happening there, what's happening in communities or cities where there's less exposure? So to have something like that happen in our backyard in the United States just sent shockwaves. That was a safe space where you can go and be yourself and not fear, you know, the the ridicule or violence of the outside world. And and it came right into our establishment. So it was time. I knew it was time. And I wrote an article for Yahoo Sports coming out. Um, I hoped maybe I would get, you know, a little traction and use my platform as a hockey player and maybe it would help a few kids. And now you're right. I, I speak a lot. I have kids reaching out from all over the world. I had somebody reach out last night from Africa. And it's, uh, it's my life changed. <laughs> We're talking with Brock McGillis, former OHLer, played for the Sioux Greyhounds, played for the Windsor Spitfires. You can visit brockmcgillis.com for a lot more information and a lot of great material. Brock Emotionally, I mean, it, it's one thing to look at that. Emotionally, was there a moment during that day when, when you started to take those steps and, and you started to do the things you are now doing that you said, yeah, I am ready for this? Is, is there something that people who would be in a similar position have to wait for, or do you just kind of jump into the water and, and see what happens? Well, I almost came out in phases, in, in steps. I... You know, I was out to Brendan, and at that time, a couple of my close friends in Montreal knew. Um, they were lesbians on the women's hockey team, and, and it was just, I needed somebody. And then after that, I when Brendan passed, I came out to my family because of the, you know, um, the words he had left with me. It just, I... I I had to. I owed it to him, and I owed it to his legacy to be out. So I came out to friends, and I came out to family outside of hockey. Um, but I remained closeted in hockey, and even after I retired, I started working with athletes, and I stayed closeted. Um, and shortly before I came out, I, I funny story, a hockey mom called me, and hockey parents are an interesting breed, mm-hmm. um, to say the least. And I get a lot of phone calls every day. I coach and mentor hockey players still. And um, this phone call was very unique. This mother calls me and says, Brock, I want to set you up on a date. And I was thinking, oh, no. 
Like, what am I going to tell her? And I said, well, what's her name? And she said, Steve. And I said, what? And she goes, you're gay. I'm like, how do you know that? She goes, oh, my son told me. Her son was 15 at the time. She's like, he's known for years, all the boys know. And I thought, how cool is this that, you know, these hockey players, these hyper-masculine hockey bros, uh, many of which play major junior hockey, like, all know I'm gay and choose to work with me. And it made me realize a shift could happen in that culture. So for me, I, I had steps leading up to when I eventually came out publicly um, that I knew I could create a shift. I didn't know how. I didn't know if it would be through the article fully or what I'd be doing to do it, but I, I knew I could, and I've been motivated for so many years to do so that it was inevitable that I would. That's Brock McGillis. You can hear the entire interview. That's a snippet from it on our Around the OHL podcast. And he's a guy who is doing a whole lot with his story, changing attitudes. And later in the interview, he talks more about other players in the league. And he tells a story about a training session that he was running and a guy who plays in the OHL right now, Brad Chenier, plays for the North Bay Battalion. And one of the kids in the training session, a a much younger kid, used the word gay, as in, ah, that's so gay that we have to do that. And Brad Chenier stopped him and said, hey, we don't talk like that here. And it wasn't anything bad. He wasn't, you know, singling that guy out for, for any major reason. He didn't lecture him. He just said, hey, we don't, we don't talk like that here. And that's the kind of stuff that does make the difference. You got to have people in those positions in whatever it happens to be an older teenager talking to a younger teenager. I always say I can't wait until the young people right now in their late teens, early 20s, early 30s, I can't wait until they're running the world because I really believe it's going to be a different place. We had a lot of people who now feel it's okay to be divisive. Because they have examples of divisiveness and they think that that's all right, that they have some kind of belief that singles somebody out or that makes them feel better than another person. And they try to exploit that saying, yeah, yeah, those people over there because of the way they look or because of who they are or because of who they believe in. Yeah, they're not as good as me. I don't like them. They're ruining my world. We need less of that attitude. And that attitude has been allowed back in. That attitude has made gains. And that's too bad because those kinds of attitudes, I firmly believe, will really start to disappear as the late teens, early 20s, late 20s, and early 30s of our world begin to run the show. And I look forward to that day. We'll come back and close out London Live after this. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL. You know what we've forgotten to mention today on London Live? It's Groundhog Day Eve. We need to do more celebrating of Groundhog Day than what we do. I know it's big. If you go up to Wyarton, it's it's big. But we need to do more celebrating. It's a good little recognition of the fact that we've hit February 2nd, especially in this part of the world where what's January? It's a gray month. It's a tough month. It can be a cold month. And then Groundhog Day hits, and this little creature... Tells us whether or not 
spring is right around the corner. And whether it's right around the corner or whether it's six more weeks of winter, it's basically the same. But it gives us hope. Tomorrow, we'll actually be at Pierside Pub. You can come and say hi. Let's say 10.30 to noon, sometime around there. I'll be there with Taz from the FM 96 Morning Show. And they have their own Groundhog Day celebration. Only they don't use a groundhog. You'll be able to meet what they do use if you come by. So tomorrow, anytime between 10.30 and noon, head to the Pierside Pub in Port Stanley. We'll be there. We'll be having a good time. And uh, we'll see whether or not spring is coming soon to the Port Stanley area. Thanks to Matt McInnes for his help today. Thank you to all of our guests. Next up, Jacqueline LaBelle has news. London Live, brought to you by our friends at Winmar, the restoration specialists. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.